This podcast is brought to you by Shout Engine. In less than five minutes, you can start your own podcast for free with ShoutEngine.com. And welcome to the Hooniverse Podcast, episode number 46. And we're just going to cut to the chase here because we have a very special guest here. It's uh, Pete Brock. Pete Brock is in town for um, George's, uh, George, George, our good friend George Notaris, you know, inside the Moto Man studio. And um, we were lucky enough to uh, sit down and ask him some questions as well. Good. Pete, let's how you go. Good morning. So, uh, so what brings you? I mean, other than here to being here to talk with George, what brings you out to LA this time? Well, we do. You know, a lot of our uh, uh, work has been over a period of time with uh, uh, suppliers for our business. So, I'm always good to come back down to the LA area. I mean, of course, I used to live here for many years, but uh, you know, we moved out to Henderson, Nevada now, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's nice because uh, it's kind of like California was about 50 years ago. California is getting so uh, overcrowded and smoggy and uh, politically incorrect for me that uh, I really enjoy Nevada a lot better. Fair enough. And that business is trailers, too, these days. Yes, we've got a new uh, trailer facility set up to build out there. We build aerodynamic race trailers. and uh, so. But we still got a few suppliers here in the, uh, in the Southern California area. And so it's always good to come back here. And of course, we got a lot of our friends in the racing business still live here. So, mm-hmm. so uh, these trailers are they? I assume that they're aerodynamic uh, for fuel savings when you're on the road doing big cross country trips. Yes, yeah, they're. Uh, the, you know, the average trailer that you see out there is what we call a big bread box trailer. It's a flat front on it, and uh, if you look at it, most people that are po- towing those things are towing a bunch of dead air inside the trailer. So it really made sense to uh, make an aerodynamic trailer, and they they get from thirty to fifty percent better fuel mileage than a, wow. a conventional trailer. So it makes a big difference for uh, for a guy that's a privateer hauling his own car. That is uh, that's pretty remarkable. And it's uh, super lightweight. It's all aluminum, and with uh, composite parts and stuff on it. So uh, it's it's you know much of that has to do with the performance is not so much aerodynamics but also just the weight on the on the trailer completely so that combination makes it a really uh, very different trailer and there's nothing else like it on the market it's the only thing out there and you drove down here a few days ago in in a daytona of course yep yep so how was that drive we do a lot of uh, uh uh remodeling on uh south african built daytonas uh uh, we've made about 180 of them now in South Africa, and uh, those cus- customer cars go all over the world. And then uh, people send them out to us, and then uh, I kind of update them with a lot uh, later equipment and stuff on them, really just refines them. So that's one of the ones that so we brought down just here. kind of bring them up to what the modern expectations of what a car well, would be? Well, some of the materials that they have down in South Africa are not as good as that we can get here. So we, you know, we remake the rear glass on them. Uh, we uh, mount the headlight covers differently like the cars that I originally designed on them. I put, you know, superior mirrors on them. We do some tuning on the engine, fix the, the exhaust systems on them, uh, change the gearboxes around. You know, whatever it needs to make the car really a nicer, nicer car to drive. And recently, the Shelby Daytona was in the news because it's the first car to be historically documented by the Library of Congress. So that puts it in the same realm as historic structures, historic aircraft, you know, like the Space Shuttle, the Statue of Liberty, for example. Yeah, a Golden Gate Bridge or, yeah. you know, anything like that, which is really an incredible honor. And this is a, a car that um, currently belongs to Fred Simeone at the Simeone Museum back in uh, in Philadelphia. 
and it's a CSX2287, and that was the very first car that we built here in California. Uh, uh, did all the completed work on the car at Shelby's, and that was really a rush job. We built that car in 90 days, you know, from the first wow. sketch to the time it was finished. So that's 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 a build process in line with modern build processes. Like as far as getting a, a demo unit out there, yeah, that's pretty remarkable. 90 oh, days for that era. Absolutely, yeah, and, and uh, that was just due to the incredible crew that we had at Shelby American to uh, to uh, put that car together. And there was, you know, there was so much resistance to the design at the beginning that, uh, you know, not not everybody in the shop wanted to work on it. They kind of all thought it was kind of an ugly car when I first proposed it and showed the drawings on it. But as we got going on, uh, you know, Ken Miles was my real champion within the company and convinced Shelby that we should go ahead with the design because he understood a little bit about what I was trying to do aerodynamically with the car. He'd raced in Europe. And uh, the inspiration for the car was really some uh, German aerodynamic studies that had been done in the late 1930s. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when I proposed the idea to Carol, uh, you know, I said, it's going to be a pretty strange-looking car. And he said, I don't care if it's just fast, you know. So I said, well, we may we may be there, you know. <laughs> I, I find it funny that, that for that era, it was strange-looking. But by today's standards, it kind of blends into the Absolutely. supercar spectrum because it set the benchmark. Absolutely. Yeah, it completely changed um, the, the uh, perception of what aerodynamics uh, should be for an automobile. And, you know, every car that you see today, whether it's a, a Prius or whatever, they're all chopped off at the back. But at that time... Um, uh, the uh, accepted aerodynamic uh, idea was what we call a Jure design. Jure was an uh, aerodynamicist who worked for the Zeppelin company in the late 30s, and everything was supposed to be a teardrop shape that mm-hmm. came back to a really nice point. And uh, nobody had ever seen anything like that over here. The guys in Europe had just started doing uh, some chopped-off tail cars. Uh, the Italians were doing some, and, uh, of course, the Germans were doing a little so. But nobody had ever seen anything like that here in the United States. So it was it was a real breakaway. And, of course, uh, there was a lot of conjecture. Um, I think people today would understand if they looked at any of Ben Bowlby's uh, cars. Uh, you know, they were so completely different. You know, there's a lot of people that had no idea that uh, uh, Bowlby's car was going to be as radical as it was, and, and a lot of people were ridiculing it, but uh, it's just another great, great design, you know. And you tried to do that design at GM with the Stingray, right? Well, I didn't do the, the Stingray yeah. design. Believe me, uh, I did a lot of the work on the car, um, all, the sh- all the designs that were accepted by Bill Mitchell, but uh, Bill Mitchell is the guy that really uh, designed that car. He was a, the heir apparent for uh, General Motors styling at that time, and a very, very uh, 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 powerful person uh, in his own ideas about design. And he still had a lot of the Jure tapered ideas on him. I was trying to, you know, get him to fix a few things on the car. But uh, he was very, very set in his ways and what he wanted to do it. But he still liked all the uh, the interpretations that I'd done. He had gone over to Italy in, uh, in 57, in the summer of 57, had gone over to the Turin Auto Show and had seen some streamliners over there that were being made uh, uh, by Farina and Stangolini and, and just beautiful little streamliners. But they all had this very, very similar thing of a very crisp belt line all the way around with uh, four aerodynamic shapes over each of the wheels. And that was really the key that, uh, that Bill uh, took uh, to design the Stingray. Uh, 
So when he came back with those ideas and photographs and, and laid those all out in front of us, uh, that gave me an idea of which way to go. And there were four designers in the studio, and uh, Bill actually liked this, the uh, proposals that I made and selected the drawings that I'd done and said, okay, this is the way we're going to go. So pretty much I uh, had a lot to do with the with the uh, with the design of the car, and I'm very, very proud of it. It's still a beautiful, beautiful car, but aerodynamically it's not a very successful car. But, uh, uh, as we found out when we first got, got the car built, uh, Bill was going to race the car uh, on his own with Dr. Dick Thompson driving it uh, in uh, 1959. From the, from the time that we uh, started on it till the time it first raced in 1959, uh, it, it took a while to, to get done. But um, the car could have been a lot better aerodynamically. In those days, when you were when you were prototyping things, was there any attempts for any any sort of wind tunnel testing? Or the aerodynamics was such an unknown uh, um, art at that time. There are pictures. If uh, you look in my book uh, called Singray, a Genesis of American uh, Icon, there are pictures of quote the wind tunnel in. Uh, in General Motors, but there is no rolling floor at all, mm-hmm. so the air that's flowing over the car is really uh, way, way too close to the tunnel walls and stuff. And people didn't realize that you know to have a really successful tunnel, uh, the car itself has to be set away from the wall so that uh, you don't have any influence of the walls or the floor or whatever on you, it. You would get a lot of turbulence otherwise, though, yeah, with the air yeah, bouncing yeah, around the car, yeah, right? Yeah. So it, uh, it it never really gave a, a, a true indication, but there's some beautiful little pictures in there, um, and the car is split in half uh, for the testing. Uh, one half of the car is showing it um, with little droplets of um, oil and black carbon on it, which they would put all over the car, and then they'd speed up the tunnel and the... And the uh, carbon black and the oil would would show trails because you have no fluid dynamics and you you guys weren't using smoke at that point right oh that's hilarious and then on the other half of the car they have little uh uh pieces of yarn about six inches long and they're showing uh which way they go so um and then the photograph is in a still but you can see what's happening with the airflow that's uh staying attached and what is showing some turbulence on it but of course, it doesn't show what's going on internally with the car and mm-hmm. the wheel wells and the, and the airflow through the radiator, and all of those things are things that create a tremendous amount of of drag. And if you can really uh, spend time refining those, that's really uh, what goes on in terms of, of making a car successful and, and aerodynamically. Maybe more important than anything, you had you guys had no idea if there was lift from the design at that point, exactly, too. Exactly, yeah. See, the thing is that uh, in the beginning, you know, we didn't have a lot of horsepower. You know, race cars weren't running a lot of horsepower back in those days. So downforce wasn't even a critical factor, and everything in terms of downforce in those days was to create a car with extremely low drag. So you were trying to get this sort of teardropped ideal shape to create low drag, but people didn't realize that you know once you get beyond a certain speed on that, the curvature on the top of the body creates lift, just like an airplane wing, mm-hmm. and the cars begin to lift. So uh, the whole idea of uh, what uh, proper aerodynamics was really changed about um, oh in the late 50s there people discovered that aerodynamics was uh, downforce so, and not low drag yeah so basically you guys started catching on to what they were doing in El Segundo with the, with all the aerospace stuff yep, yep okay yep 
actually the 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 way it was discovered is really kind of an interesting story uh, uh, it was really Richie Ginther uh, a good friend of mine and, and uh, Phil Hill's partner uh, who'd gone over to drive for Ferrari and they had the first of the uh, uh, mid rear engine Ferrari roadsters and they were testing at Modena and Richie was getting sick from the fumes that were being sucked back into the cockpit. Oh, yeah, that's not And uh, he came in and complained about it. So the engineer said, okay, well, we'll put a little fence across the back of the car. So they made a little fence, which was actually a spoiler, mm-hmm. to uh, prevent that. And Richie went out, and all of a sudden they were about a second and a half, two seconds faster. Because he wasn't getting carbon monoxide poisoning while driving. Right. Well, you know, it stopped, <laughs> the, it stopped, the, stopped going into the cockpit, but yeah. all of a sudden the car was sticking at the back end. And he came in and conferred with the mechanics, you know, and the engineers there. So they decided to keep that secret. So everybody kept asking, what's that What's that silver thing you got across the back of the car? And they said, oh, that's to stop the exhaust fumes from going in and making the driver sick. And it, it, it took a little while for people to figure out what was going on. And then from that point on, that was really the, the change was, in aerodynamics yeah. and downforce became the important thing. But did did the uh, GM engineers actually take anything away from the uh, the wind tunnel testing, if you will, of the uh, Stingray? Did they make any improvements because of well, that? Well, the, remember, the Stingray racer that I did, uh, which was the prototype, didn't get any wind tunnel work at all. Uh, they really didn't start doing any uh, wind tunnel work on the car until they did the production uh, 1963 Stingray uh, production car. Which was the first coupe that uh, that Corvette did, and that, those are the pictures that and you see. It's the, maybe yeah. I mean that and the Daytona coupe are probably the two most iconic American car designs ever. They've turned out that way, yeah. They they both uh, throw the Mustang stood, in there stood, too, stood, I guess. Yeah, oh yeah, there's some other very good cars <laughs> in there. Uh, to backtrack a little bit on the um, on the Stingray Racer, which is the prototype uh, Stingray that I did for Bill Mitchell. That car actually started out as a project between uh, Zora Duntoff and uh, Mr. Harley Earl, who was at that time the head of GM Styling, and he was just on the on the cusp of retiring, and Bill Mitchell was going to take over. And uh, an interesting thing occurred at that time because uh, Harlow Curtis, who was then the president of General Motors, decided that he would try to save a lot of money for General Motors by uh, limiting all inferences of performance and stop building performance cars at General Motors. Well, that was, uh, what was that? They had, they had like a name for that thing. The too. AMA ban. The AMA. Okay. American Automobile Manufacturers Ban, and that went into force in uh, in June of 57. But what happened is, is that Zora and Mr. Earl had uh, designed a very, very special, you know, beautiful prototype uh, in the beginning of, of uh, 1957, they raced it at Sebring just one time, and then the word came down that that was the last time the car was going to race, and it was supposed to have been destroyed. Uh, that was the word uh, that uh, General Motors was not going to do any more performance, and uh, Curtis had gone around to the head of Ford Motor Company and Chrysler and uh, got them all to agree that there would be no more performance cars built in uh, Detroit. So that was pretty much the end of it uh so the uh, the car was uh uh sneaked out of the uh, general motors uh and gm uh chevrolet testing center by zora duntov and he actually gave the car to the indianapolis motor speedway and that's where the car is today otherwise it would have been destroyed completely 
Uh, and luckily, there was a spare chassis, which they call the mule, which they did all the testing with down at Sebring prior to bringing the, the actual uh, Stingray uh, 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 SS racer uh, mm-hmm. to the track. Uh, and that car was purchased by Bill Mitchell for $1, and he built the uh, Stingray racer on that car. Uh, and it had a you know 92-inch wheelbase. And it was actually built on a 300 SL Mercedes chassis. Uh, <laughs> oh, really? Uh, yeah. And uh, Mr. Uh, Earl had his own ideas about what he wanted to do for the aerodynamics on the car. Of course, it had a tapered back end on it. Well, yeah, it was hard. I mean, that was his thing. That thing, yeah. So it uh, it had, you know, some aerodynamic problems at all. But its main problem was um, it didn't have any disc brakes. The... Uh, uh, Jaguars had started running uh, disc brakes at uh, at Le Mans in 1955, which Dunlop had uh, had uh, invented, and of course they just completely changed racing. But um, the people at GM were were very loath to try to you know switch over to this newfangled braking system. So the car was uh, built with uh, uh, drum brakes, a, a combination of uh, ceramics and a very beautiful Chrysler uh, uh, drum brakes at that time. But they weren't very successful. So when the car was uh, was essentially uh, hidden away, and Mitchell bought the chassis, it still had the drum brakes on it. So when we built the built the prototype uh, uh, Mitchell racer. It never got converted over to disc brakes, and uh, consequently, it, it didn't have very good braking and had poor aerodynamics. But it was such a great looking car that. Uh, um, they had such a fantastic response from the public on the appearance of the automobile that it completely changed uh, management's opinion about which way they would go for uh, design and allowed the uh, Corvette program to uh, continue. And, of course, that car uh, became the production of Stingray, which we saw it came out in 1963. So it's yeah. like that It's like that friend you have that's really good-looking, isn't very coordinated, doesn't have a lot going upstairs, right. but they're like, we're going to take this one to finishing school. Yes, okay. absolutely, yeah. And it's uh, you know it for the first time sales went over ten thousand and it was just a major major uh, breakthrough in American automotive design and the, and really set the standard uh, for Bill Mitchell because that was the transition between Harley Earl's design and Bill Mitchell's design and his era Mitchell's era was probably the high point of 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 what we call traditional American automotive design. I mean, you look at the Buick Rivieras mm-hmm. in 63 and 64 and the Toronados and and uh, uh, the Monza GT Coupes that were done by uh, Larry Shinoda and, and, uh, and Tony Lapine. I mean, those were just absolutely beautiful, beautiful cars and some of the best things that have ever been done in America for automotive design. Now, in your book, it says that when you left uh, GM to go for, go to Shelby, you didn't really tell him that you had worked on the Stingrays that you, at the time you were racing against. No, no, I never mentioned to Shelby that I'd been working in the automotive design area because when I went to work for Shelby, um, I was hoping that uh, I was going to be a race driver. That was my whole goal from the time I was 12 years old. And I'd, I'd taken the fallback position of designing cars at General Motors as something that I could do until I was 21. I, st- I hired in at GM as a designer at the age of 19, so I had, you know, a couple of years to to uh, to wait until I get my license uh, with the SECA at that time. They were, you know, rather uh, uh, closed-minded and thinking that young kids could race cars, you know, and didn't have any good kart racing or anything at that time. Mm-hmm. So... Um, 
Uh, actually, I, I was working here in the, uh, the Los Angeles area for Max Balchowski up at Hollywood Motors, and that's where I got to know Carol. Uh, he'd come in. He just won Le Mans in 1959. He was deciding he was going to retire, and he wanted to uh, start a racing school. And uh, used to come in there and, and uh, talk to Max about driving the old Yeller in the last couple of races for the 1960 season, which he did. And uh, talked about this racing school and asked if I'd like to work for him on it, and uh, which I did. So I took over his uh, his driving school program, and uh, I never I never mentioned at all that I had any you know automotive design background because he was trying to get this program going for this new car. He's gonna. It, it was, at that time it was just called the Shelby Sportster, Sportster, and uh, eventually he came up with the name Cobra. And I was hoping that I was going to be able to be the team driver for that because I was doing all the initial testing on the car out at Riverside. So I had, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles on the uh, initial Cobras out at uh, Riverside Raceway and probably knew that car better than anybody else. And then at the last moment, he decided to put Billy Krause in it for the first time that we raced at uh, um, Riverside in October of 1962. And, of course, I was extremely pissed off because, uh, you know, he'd been promising me I was going to have this ride, and he gave it to Billy, which was really the smart thing to do. I think I had seven races on my SCCA logbook at that time, and Billy was probably the, one of the top sprint car drivers here in Southern California. And uh, so he had a, a mano a mano test out there at, uh, at Riverside, and, of course, I was so experienced in the car, I was slightly faster than Billy. And he still gave the ride to Bill, and I was <laughs> I was really upset. Hey, and he says, don't, don't worry, Pete. He says, you know, as soon as we get going, you'll get your chance. To, I'll put you in the car. And I say, yeah, yeah, you know. And, um, and of course, as soon as everybody heard how fast the Cobra was, man, we had a line of guys outside a Shelby store. I mean, we had Phil Hill. We had Bob Bondurant. We had Dave McDonald. You know, we had Ken Miles, you know. So, yeah, a bunch of no names. Yeah, just a <laughs> bunch of guys you'd never heard of, you know. So my chances of getting a ride uh, kind of went away and uh, – uh, so my uh, my quote talent at uh, Shelby American was diverted over basically to um, establishing a new image for the company and in, in designing all the logos and the uh, the uh, emblems and the T-shirts and uh, and finally designing the Daytona Cobra Coupe. So that was sort of the the high point. It all turned out well. So do you get a kick when you see kids coming out? You know, these days walking around with Cobra shirts on and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So all that stuff was all. Uh, and it was really fun because you, we could just do anything. Shelby didn't have any, you know, really regard for what good design was. All he cared was, is it going to be fast enough to win with? And uh, so it, it pretty much allowed me to do anything I wanted to. I had a free reign to uh, to create the Daytona. And as I said, when I first came up with the idea of it, uh, we had kind of a... a uh, a democratic society and the group of guys that were building the race cars. I mean, Shelby's group of mechanics and, and fabricators and stuff were the were the best. They were the cream of the crop in Southern California. But of course, they, their whole goal was to go to Indianapolis. They always thought that if, if Shelby was going to be really successful, you know, we'd build an Indy car. So they were street hot rodders. They were guys that ran at the lakes. They were guys in, into drag racing, good engine builders or whatever. And when I... Uh, 
showed up with the with the drawings of what I wanted to do with the Daytona Coupe. It didn't look like anything they'd ever seen before. So there was a tremendous amount of resistance within the place. And of course, I was just about 22 years old. And here's all these guys, either the most experienced racers in Southern California, and they're all going, God, this kid's program is just... So they called it Brock's Folly, you know. And if it hadn't have been for Ken Miles, really, uh, to... Uh, Promote the promote the thing with Shelby. Probably the car wouldn't have gotten done because there was so much resistance. But as slowly as we started getting the car built, and guys started looking at it, and, and Ken started talking a little bit on it. They came around, and then we went out to test on February first, uh, nineteen sixty four, and the car was just absolutely super fast at Riverside. Um, we had the same basic chassis set up underneath it that we'd run over the Roadster, and. Uh, Ken got out. He didn't even make more than, I think, about 10 or 15 laps. Came back, and he said, what gear we got in this car? And, of course, the mechanic said, exactly what you wanted. Uh, the car is set up exactly like the Roadsters. And he didn't believe him. He said, no, I want you to jack the car up and uh, and check that rear end. So the way you do that is, you know, you mark the tire, and you turn the mm-hmm. turn the tire one thing, and you see how many revolutions of the drive shaft and. Sure enough, it's the same as the Roadster. He says, I can't believe it. He says, I'm coming out of the corners. And he had, you know, at that time now, hundreds and hundreds of miles on it, just like I had at Riverside. So he knew to the every rock and bush on the track exactly how many RPM he'd be turning. And the coupe was so much faster, not just down the straightaway, but coming out of the, out of the corners because we had to stiffen the chassis up. Tremendously, t- so that the uh, well, the original Cobra, of course, everybody knows that it, it stuck because it was flexible as all hell. Yeah, it was very flexible. But if if you'd build a coupe body on that, it would have been so flexible that the windows would have popped out, or the doors wouldn't have stayed closed on it. So we had to build a subframe over the top to stiffen it up, and it was actually stiffening that chassis that made the thing so much more effective because we could dial in the chassis closer. And uh, right off, he knew that the car was going to be much much faster. So he didn't even say, you know, we're going to stick around and do more testing. He went right to the phone, told Carol how fast the car was, and said, call Goodyear and get them to make some larger rear tires on it because this thing won't stick right now. We've got so much power to the ground on it that we're breaking loose on all the corners. So they called back to Goodyear to make some new tires, and they said, uh, we've got to have them by Daytona, which is in a couple of weeks. And they said, well, we, we can't make a new tire in that amount of time. The tooling's just impossible. But he said, we have one solution. We've just finished a new uh, race tire for the front of the uh, stock cars, and uh, it's called a stock car special. And you have to understand that at this time, Goodyear had just got into the racing tire business, and they had actually given Carroll the uh, distributorship for the 11 western states. But they were trying to break into the market that had been held up to that time, pretty much the United States by Firestone. And, of course, the real racing tires were Dunlop and Continental and Pirelli over here. So for Goodyear to break into this tire market was really a, a pretty big thing, and Carroll was you know, pretty anxious to make it work and use the Cobra to, uh, to demonstrate the tire. So they offered to, uh, to fly these uh, special uh, stock car tires out to put on the rear of the car, and we did that. And, of course, they were much, much bigger, and they stuck out beyond the, the outside of the car. So we didn't have any time to uh, make the car FI legal in terms of uh, coverage of the tire. Mm-hmm. So they just took a, a big piece of uh, aluminum 
and the pop riveted on the outside of the rear fenders, which we call the spats on the outside. So if you look at the pictures of the of the Daytona Cobra when it ran the very first time in uh, in uh, uh, late February, early March there of uh, of Daytona, it has these welded on spats, and then later those were incorporated into the design. And the car actually began to get larger and larger as we built the extra versions of it. So tire uh, tire development really had more to do with the with the uh, shape of that car as we moved along than anything else. So had you not had that, if, if you guys hadn't run into that in that specific instance with those tires, the body may have came out maybe a little more jag looking instead. Well, it was it was a much more svelte looking car, yeah. and it's still that particular car, CSX twenty two eighty seven, which is the first and only Daytona Cobra that we built here in California, is still a car that has the ideal uh, lines on it, which uh, which I came up with. The uh, the second car, uh, CSX twenty two ninety nine, um, was the second chassis that was sent over to Modena to have them uh, build the cars because we had so few people in our crew at Shelby American. Uh, when we decided to go over to Europe, the crew went with the cars. There was nobody left really in in uh, in America to build it. So Carol called Alessandro Di Tommaso and said, can you find somebody there in, in Italy that can build these bodies for us? So he uh, got together with uh, Carrozzeria Grand Sport there in, uh, in Modena, and they agreed to build the bodies on them. So the chassis were sent over, the two basic tubes were sent over from um, AC. We put the engines and all the wiring and the, and the cowl tubes and uh, the, uh, the basic anti-roll bar set up on it. The, the, those were all built in California because we had enough crew left to do that. And then those were air freighted uh, over to Italy to install the bodies. And it was interesting because when I uh, had finished up the uh, drawings in quarter scale and, uh, and sent those over to Italy, uh, they arrived uh, with, with, this, with this bare chassis and the Italian workmen Looked at the looked at the drawings and they had very much the same reaction that the guys had in our shop when we first built the car and they said oh Christ it looks all wrong we better help these poor Americans out and we'll <laughs> fix the car for them so that it looks proper so they changed the roof line on the car and uh, uh, it actually ended up a little bit slower but since there was nobody down there at the shop you know all the guys were down at uh, at the Targa Florio and I was still over in California. They built the car different uh, than it was uh, designed, and uh, that particular car actually had a little bit higher roof line in it, and uh, it became Dan Gurney's car. And even though it was slightly slower in terms of top speed because of the aerodynamics, it was the car that ran more races than any of the other Daytonas and probably was the most successful car because it had the top crew chief and, of course, Dan Gurney driving it. So that's always become known as Gurney's car, 2299, and it now belongs uh, to the Greg Miller family up at uh, uh, Miller Motorsports Park in, mm-hmm. in Utah. Great park. In Utah. Beautiful, beautiful car. And Dan Gurney could actually fit in it, too. And Dan Gurney fit in it, yeah. And it, you just wonder how he could get in it because he's really a big guy. And I've been in and out, of course, these cars. They all had to be built on a 90-inch Cobra wheelbase. Uh, they should have been stretched out, and uh, but you know, Dan had get in anything and drive it, and uh, he, he made it work. You know, he's just an incredible guy. And and meanwhile, in the states, or actually around the world as well, when um, when Duntoff's five Grand Sport Corvettes came out, the Daytonas just whooped them at, at every chance, right? 
Well, the, it was very unfortunate on, on the Grand Sport because uh, uh, there were several political things that went on during that po- that time. Um, it, it, prior to that point, you only had to send a letter to the FIA say you intended to build 50 cars for them to be homologated because even a, even a quote, a, quote, large factory like Ferrari, if they introduced the car in October and they wanted to have cars built for the customers by January or February, the first race of the year, they couldn't have built, you know, 50 cars or whatever. So they, you, you just sent a letter, and it was a gentleman's agreement that you intended to build this number of cars. Well, of course, when the Cobras showed up, uh, Ferrari screamed so loud that uh, they said, okay, well, we're going to have to check the number of cars they actually have to be built uh, before they will homologate the cars. So that pretty much set the standard on how many cars that were going to be built. And at that time, it was only 50 cars. Well, Duntoff ran into the same problem. You know, we ran the ran the uh, Cobra against the uh, Stingrays out at uh, Riverside in October 62. He realized the Cobras were that much faster. He went back to GM to, to, uh, to build the Grand Sports and then realized that they were going to have to build 50 cars to make them legal. So there was no way that he could build 50 race cars at that time. But he got he got six, maybe six. There's only five of them left, but somewhere there was a sixth car. And uh, got five cars built, and uh, by that time, uh, he got it really a super, super motor running, uh, a 396 mystery motor. And they ran it down at Nassau, and it just completely blew the Cobras away. I mean, it was so powerful. But the car was awful aerodynamically. I mean, mm-hmm. A.J. Foyt drove the car down there. The wheels are coming off the ground at about 140. But it didn't matter. It still had the power. And uh, so it, it's always been the high point of, uh, of Stingray design, that the Grand Sport was the you know, greatest Corvette race car ever built, but it was pretty awful car. It just had fabulous power. Well, yeah, and realistically, the the Corvette really didn't become another great race car again until the C5R came around. Yep. yep. So it's uh, it was a long time that uh, that Malaise era kicked in and, and really killed the American race cars in general. But yep. now we're back to an age where we're, we're represented very well again. Yep. Well, the most important thing, again, about that era is Ed Cole was responsible for the design of the first overhead valve motors that came out of GM. The first one, of course, was the the Rocket 88 in 1949 and uh, developed into the the 55 Chevy, uh, which became probably the greatest racing motor ever built. You know, I mean, there's probably more races won of all different types all over the world with Chevys than, than anything else. There's a lot of great exotic motors been built, but I'll tell you, even today, you look at the LS7 motor that's in the, in the current Corvette. You can turn those things. They're pushrod motors. They're turning them 10,000 10, RPM. Oh, you know. you're preaching to the choir here. I, I rolled up in my Corvette this morning. So. Yeah, yeah, did you? Yeah, no, they're absolutely, uh, it's fantastic what you can do with uh, today with the pushrod motor. Yeah, and if, if you don't mind, I want to... S- I want to skip ahead a little bit to sure. the BRE Datsun era. And a, uh, a reader actually wrote in and said, you know, we're going to be seeing the Nissan IDX concepts later today. And, you know, you saw them yesterday yep, at Bikini. Yep. And they're, of course, the modern interpretation of the 510. And he was asking, would BRE, would BRE have the same following today as it did back in the 70s? 
got, if anything, it's larger today than it was back in the 70s. It's just incredible. We have such an incredible following uh, of people that are still interested in uh, in the BRE cars that we ran that at that time, and we still have a huge um, uh, business in, in parts and memorabilia and everything from that time because of people that grew up that in that point, uh, whether they could own a a 510 or a 240Z at that time are now, you know, wealthy enough to uh, to build a beautiful uh, replica of the car. And there, there are literally hundreds of them all over the world that have been built. And we send parts, you know, down to New Zealand and Australia and Sweden and Germany. And so there are BRE cars everywhere. So we have a, a great following on it. And I think that if we have a chance uh, to get going on the new IDX car and... and uh, and get going again. I'd, I'd love to run a BRE tar with the with the IDX. Well, the the interesting thing to me is that the the BRE stuff is even it's it's gaining more providence with with our generation now. Yes, because we've got um, you know I was you know it, the heyday of BRE really predated me by a few years, but. You know, I started listening to, to to Adam Carolla's stuff, and he's got the BRE right. car, and then you know got to know them over the course of the last few years. And you know, I, I looked, you know, I've been over there and I've seen his 510, and I'm like, okay, now I really love these cars. And yeah. I think that you know, there's some respect, especially amongst our generation of people with like the 510s. The 510 is oh, it's such an icon. That and like the 2002, yes. I think my two favorite smaller cars from that yeah, era. Absolutely, you know, and we have. One of each in our family. Gail's got a beautiful little 2002, and I've got a you know really nice little 510 sedan. And they are both of them just classic designs from that era. And it's hard to believe how small those cars are now. You know, with all the new federal regulations on what are required of manufacturers, cars have gotten so big and sort of you know cumbersome compared to uh, the light whippiness of those little 510s. So that. Anybody that can uh, can afford to buy a little 510 these days and do some work on it has something that's really a really fun car to drive, and they're mm-hmm. so simple to work on. And, uh, you know, what parts aren't available, you can certainly, uh, you know, put a five-speed Miata gearbox in or a Toyota gearbox in if you don't have one of the five-speed uh, Roadster gearboxes that we used in those days. So you can update, backdate so many little parts and pieces on the cars and just... You know, just keep improving them slightly, and they're really, really fun cars. They're basically a blank canvas at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just they're they're great, great cars. Yeah. And there's an entire resurgence with uh, the idea that Japanese cars can be collectible, and Japanese cars are classic and desirable and everything. And the best part about that is that you know a lot of European and American cars have been priced completely out of the stratosphere. You right. go to Barrett Jackson, you see a Stingray go for four hundred thousand dollars. Absolutely, yeah. But you know you can get a two forty Z, a running one for like four grand, eight grand or something, and it's Easily, a gorgeous yeah. car. Yeah. yeah, we just bought one for about twenty five hundred dollars, and we're completely restoring it. I mean, we're taking it all down to bare metal and stuff. And when that car finishes, it's going to be beautiful. But that shows you can you can buy a car between two and six thousand dollars that is really and that 240z is going to be a, another great classic oh yeah style. i think we're yeah. about 10 years out from those getting really yeah. expensive just like the 510s are getting expensive yes. now oh yeah, yeah. you yeah. know whereas yeah. i think the z cars give it 10 years now is the time to buy them absolutely now's the time. Yeah. Now's yeah. The time. that's consumer advice from the hooniverse podcast yes yes wrong. it is smart yeah. buying advice yeah. on yeah. a 30 year old car exactly yep. absolutely no though those cars are going to go stratospheric here in a couple of years yep and um, another question someone sent in was, what was your favorite racetrack to race at? 
Or to drive out. Well, you know, I, my favorite racing really is uh, is Baja. Right. Uh, so if you ask me what my favorite racetrack is, it's uh, whatever course they're running in Mexico for the Mexican 1000. And the reason for that um, is that the course changes all the time when you're running on it. It requires so much more concentration and really bravery to run in Baja than you do on a paved track. I have you know, I've, I grow, grew up racing sports cars on paved tracks and stuff, but I didn't really understand how difficult and how wonderful the guys are that run Baja, uh, how tremendously talented the guys are that run in, in, uh, in the off-road races are, um, because we're, we're really we're so over-restricted in our rules today in racing. That you can't uh, you can't move around you can't innovate you can't make the changes that are required and when you run in Baja, the rules are pretty much wide open you can build anything you want. Well, then in that case, uh, you you probably really like the Dakar races then too. What's that? The Dakar Rally? Yes. Yeah, is that that's got to be right up your alley then Absolutely. too? Absolutely. You know, I went over to uh, the Dakar when it was still running in Africa. I went over on Bobby uh, Robbie Gordon's crew, and uh, again. Uh, uh, I, I think the Baja racing is even more difficult in many ways because uh, Robbie and B.J. Baldwin, who are both running, are restricted in the amount of power that they can put out to those cars under FIA rules because if you look at the uh, the high percentage of cars that runs in Dakar, most of them are two-liter SUV-type cars. Mm-hmm. So when you show up with like a Baja trophy truck and stuff, it would be so fast compared to those things that they cut those guys back. But when in Baja, there's no cutback. They're running seven, eight hundred horsepower and those things, and they're they're running eighty, ninety, yeah. hundred and forty mile an hour on dirt roads that you know if you tried to take a modern SUV down, you'd just disassemble a thing in a quarter mile. And these guys are fast. Baja is a brute force race, whereas like the car is it's it's driver skill, but it's also very much an engineer's race too. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's it's very interesting that the minis have been so successful down there. I mean, these are all uh, hand built silhouette type cars, but the fact that uh, that you can take a car that uh, with the configuration of a mini down there and and run against you know anything that they they run down there has been very successful. Yeah, and um. And for us, actually speaking of racetracks as well, for us listeners who are too young to remember Riverside Raceway, um, you know, that track has a long history with Shelby and with just American racing in general. And how how is that track regarded by teams and drivers? Well, Riverside, of course, was always the classic. And I'm sorry I didn't answer your previous question. What's your favorite racetrack here in the United States? I think... um Baja definitely counts as a yeah, favorite I mean, racetrack. That's, that's yeah. worldwide. I mean, I'd, I'd have to you know include Le Mans in there and, and some of the tracks that no longer exist, or some of the great ones like Spa in Belgium. I mean, those are those are real, real racetracks, just completely different than anything we know here. But as far as American racetracks, um, I think my classic uh, American racetrack has got to be Elkhart Lake. It's like a it's like a national park. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Laguna Seca is, you know, a fabulous track as well. And, of course, Riverside's gone, but uh, it was one of, you know, the classic American tracks. And uh, I, I spent so many hundreds of hours on it that I, you know, knew that place. Uh, you know, I could drive around there, you know, and blindfolded almost. It's a great, great track, yeah. So uh, with, with all the current, I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff that's, that's going on in the performance realm these days. 
look, you know, with, with your perspective on the industry, what's out there now that you really that you think they're doing it really well, or you think is just a beautifully designed car? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, I've I've got so much admiration for Ben Bowlby and the Delta Wing idea, you know, mm-hmm. because again, it sort of duplicated the same resistance that. Uh, occurred when uh, when I when I did the Daytona coupe you know uh, everybody looked at that car and said well it'll never turn it's not going to work uh, it's you know and you know he went out and proved that it all works and now uh, you know Nissan's taken over the design they've actually built a you know a sports car version of the thing and it's it's totally different looking so you have to admire it uh, of what he's done uh, in completely changing people's thinking about you know what proper engineering is, or what a car should look like, and uh, it's you know it's just a fabulous automobile. But in terms of what car is available today, in terms of modern engineering, I think there isn't anything out there that'll touch the new Corvette C7. I mean, it is just the best car out there in the world, especially for the money. But uh, you go out and drive that car, and it is absolutely incredible it's so good yeah i I was part of a uh, thing where we we filmed with the new 911 uh, the the, the new 991s oh yes yeah and you know it was back to back with the stingray and that on the track and the 911 is an absolutely brilliant car everything does everything completely differently than the corvette does and and i think the summation was at the end of the day that the 911 was a tiny bit better around the track but it was also almost literally three times the price yes um, yep. So I think you you know right on the money with no, the, the dollar for the dollar yeah. value. There's just nothing that'll touch the core. So the sky is the limit, though. Let's say everything above that hundred thousand dollar threshold. Is there anything out there that kind of grabs your attention? No. If I if I had all the money in the world to buy any car today, I'd buy a Corvette. Yeah. Yep. I so, just think it's that good a car. Wait around or wait for the Z06 to come out in about a year and a half, and uh, there we go. Mm. Boy, is that thing looking good? I'll tell you it. Um, and it is so. I mean. Those guys back at GM have just done such an incredible job. Taj Euchter has done such amazing things with that program. Between the C6 and the C7, you know. A real major jump. And that car, the C6, was really a, you know, another high point in in GM design. But this crew led by uh, Taj Euchter and, uh, of course, Kirk Binion did the exterior on the, on the C7. But, uh, it's an American design. I mean, it, it says America all over it. But the finish on it, the quality, the engineering, I think that's the thing. The car is so beautifully engineered um, underneath the surface that uh, that's where you have to really appreciate what they've done with that car. I think it's uh, far, far better than anything else that that you're seeing out there, you know, out of anything out of Italy or whatever. There's some beautiful cars that are being built, some of them that you never even hear about, uh, you know, that are coming out of... uh, uh, the Scandinavian countries, some mm-hmm. of the super special stuff. They're super. Uh, I, I assume you're talking about things like the Koenigsegg. Yeah, the Koenigsegg or even the Shelby. Up yeah. there, you know, it has nothing to do with the name Carroll Shelby, but uh, there's some. There's some. Yeah, the uh, very, the, the very, SSC. That's right. Yeah, yeah, very very interesting cars that are being built. Uh, you know, some of them are strange looking, but you know, it's fun to see them happen. Have you looked at any of the mad scientist stuff that comes from uh, Horatio Pagani? Pagani's always been one of my. Uh, um, favorite cars to look at because, of course, he started out primarily as a supplier of, uh, of advanced composites for other manufacturers and just realized that he could go a lot farther than anybody else was willing to go and decided to build his own cars. And uh, they are, they're Pagani's. They're, they're you know, his, his wonderful idea of what uh, should be done. 
and uh, as exotic as they are, they're, they're they're beautiful. You know, I feel like there's a there's a shift in the supercar world happening right now to where. The really groundbreaking, pretty stuff is coming from Pagani's studios. Mm-hmm. The crazy engineering is coming from Koenigsegg. And then the, the all-out race-bred winners seem to be McLaren these days. And the other Italian oh, McLaren, brand is, is beautiful as the other brands yeah, are. Yeah. McLaren is the, a, head, in a, in a class you know, head above. Themselves. Yeah, they yeah. really are. They're just beautiful, beautiful cars. And, and, uh, so, But again, uh, getting back to saying if, if you could... Where's the major challenge in motorsports today? It's running Baja. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, the score races out here, when you see the amount of engineering that goes into a modern trophy truck, I mean, this is a 6,000-pound vehicle uh, with, you know, three, three feet of wheel travel yeah. and unsprung weight at each corner for around 130 pounds. And these guys aren't driving a one-and-a-half-hour, two-hour race, you know, around a track the same one they're on dirt roads that every corner is different and they're running 15 to 18 hours flat out across the desert and down through mexico it, there isn't any challenge as good as that in the world it seems like there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in the baja world or even in the off-road world in general not just baja of moving to more composites in the structure so that they drop a lot of that weight yeah they are and yet again the uh, the real challenge in running in baja is that you have to be able to repair in the field, and uh, everything is still chromoly uh, yeah. space frames out there, because those guys can take a welder out there, and in the middle of the desert, a crew can get there and weld something back up, and you can't do that with composites. Yeah, thirty-one forty chromoly. Yeah. It's nice because you don't got to flood it with argon, yeah. and you can just do it right in the middle. You can, yeah. you can have slag all over the weld, and it doesn't matter. Yeah, whatever it takes, those guys will get you home down there, and uh, so the crews are. Uh, Remarkable guys that uh, you know because they have to run almost as fast as the race cars on the uh, on the support roads to get ahead and uh, stay with the team and make sure that the cars are are serviced at each uh, of the checkpoints all the way down there and that's uh, part of the remarkable beauty and challenge of running in Baja is to see how how well these teams do. Yeah, and um. One one seemingly random question, I suppose. Did you ever meet the Australian Pete Brock? Yeah, I had a chance to meet Pete. He was a wonderful, wonderful uh, guy. Uh, and again, off, you know, really doing interesting things on his own. But he was literally the Dale Earnhardt of, of Australia and a, a revered name down there. And, was he V8 supercars? Is that what he was running, or what was what was his? He series? ran everything down there, but yeah. he ran. I think he ran one Mount Panorama eleven or twelve times down there. I mean, the, the guy was just a fabulous, fabulous driver and a super nice guy. So it was. Uh, I got a chance to interview him once for uh, Racer Magazine when he was up here, and then he was doing all of his uh, commercials for uh, Mobile One. So and it was interesting. I had seen him. Uh, about the week before he was killed, uh, uh, he was driving a Daytona Cobra Coupe uh, replica that was built uh, down in Australia and was killed in that car. And, uh, of course, the word came back that uh, Pete Brock had been killed in WA. We were living in WA, which was Washington at that time, in a Daytona Cobra Coupe. So a lot of confusion. Know, people still think that I'm dead, and uh, <laughs> d- didn't realize that there's another Pete Brock out there that had a you know far more uh, 
racing chops than I ever had. You mean you didn't take the life? You didn't take the chance to reboot your life and just kind of go and yeah. run around the uh, West, maybe robbing banks under a different name or something? No, God, I'll tell you. And it, it, we really lost a great one with Peter. You know, he was you know a, a great champion for Australia, and and it, it's very interesting now. Uh, Richard Bendel, who owns Motec, uh, one of the top electronics firms in automotive uh, competition. They, uh, they make the race packs, don't they? Yes. Yeah. yeah. But he also built a Daytona Cobra in, in Australia, which is the most sophisticated Daytona Cobra, Cobra Coupe. And he's going to run here in the next couple of weeks at Mount Panorama. He's finally got an entry for the car. And that car, you know... He's taken all the original uh, lines of my Daytona Cobra Coupe, but it's now got a big rear spoiler on the, a big rear wing on the back end, a front uh, splitter on it, uh, you know, downforce tabs all the way around on it, and a super modern chassis underneath. And it's as competitive as anything that's running in that class against the Lamborghinis and the late nine GT3s, and so it's uh, it's going to be pretty slick. Is that double wishbone all the way around on that? Oh, yeah. Okay, absolutely. so that's a classic the suspension design, though. Yeah, if you absolutely. want a good suspension yeah, design, yeah. that's pretty much where everybody always goes. Yeah, exactly. But he's built it all right. I mean, it's a, it's if you wanted to build a, a you know a, a great car, you can go out and buy a you know, GT3 you know, for three four $400,000. You can go down and buy one of Bendel's Daytonas, you know. Mm-hmm. And he runs with a completely stock LS7 Corvette motor in it. And... Uh, doesn't hasn't so I mean there you are you can go down and uh, go to Chevy Performance and buy that motor for you know seven to ten thousand dollars something like that and it's as good as a you know forty thousand fifty thousand dollar race motor from a European factory oh yeah I mean there's entire race series the uh, the some of the Tudor Cup stuff some of the uh, cars mm-hmm. around there they're just running bone stock LS3s prepped by KTEC yeah yep. so yeah so. With with your entire career as a race manager and working working at Shelby and Corvette and everything, would you say that you operate best maybe behind the scenes? Oh, I don't know if it's behind the scenes. I just I have I have a chance to, you know, it's not anything that I've done. I've just sort of always surrounded myself with really super competent people that I have a lot of trust in and, and have become good friends with. And I think that's of any team that we've ever had. It's been the success of the guys that I've had working for me uh, to build and take care of stuff. You know, I mean, that's I think that's the whole success of making any team is just having the right group of people. And if anything, I learned that from Shelby. You know, he Shelby knew very little about automobiles, really. And yet he turned out to be, you know, this great icon of the so-called designer and stuff. But he wasn't. He was the greatest salesman and collector of, of talent of anybody I've ever been around. You know, you're really an amazing guy in that regard and uh, could walk into any, you know, management office back in Detroit and in 15 minutes he'd have those guys eating out of his hand and believing that, you know, he could go to the moon. <laughs> so it was, it was great. I think there's a common trait amongst a lot of the really great leaders and it's, and it's certainly been a common trait upon, uh, amongst leaders in American businesses, not necessarily the most skilled at the individual craft themselves, but willing to, willing and able to find the most talented people and bring them in and put your own ego aside and let yeah. them do their thing. Yeah. That has to be it. You know, I mean, uh, uh, it's not that a lot of ego doesn't exist with uh, some of the guys that have been very successful in it, but you've got to have a guy that's, you know, kind of be a uh, – you, you got to be a hard ass at some point because when you start collecting this many great talents together – you know, everybody's got their own idea of how things should move slightly differently. So if they don't have that complete trust in the guy that's 
leading them, even though he may be doing something different that uh, they don't agree with. Uh, you've got to have that, that trust to move ahead and, and, and do things and do it his way, even though it may not be the, the exact right way. But little by little, you know, those things get modified and improved and and uh, and be, become successful. I'd say the uh, uh, McLaren is probably the most successful team out there but you look at the budget those guys are running you know i mean yeah. for f1 teams these days and the money that's left over to build anything it's it's incredible i mean so the whole era of automotive design of what's today versus the day that uh you know we were building stuff chalking out on the floor was a whole different era what a, what um actually f- speaking of f1 actually they just introduced all their new uh designs for the 2014 season and there's been some controversy on the the way they're designed on the noses and everything what do you think i have no idea i mean that <laughs> stuff is so exotic now and they do so much on computer and cfd that uh, you know i just look at it and marvel that it even works you know because first of all when you run an open wheel car most of your drag is occurring with those four round things you oh, yeah. out of each That's a lot of surface area. Yeah, so, you know, uh, my whole understanding of what aerodynamics is is how you cover that up and get rid of that amount of drag. So when you're when you're doing uh, aerodynamic studies uh, for formula racing, it's, it's a totally different game. And uh, the amount of uh, improvement that they get, you know, like, you know, half a percent here, 1% there, is a huge, huge gain on those cars. And there's, uh, again, so many limitations on, on those type of rules, on what you can do, that unless you're part of the game and uh, deeply immersed in it, you know, you'll never understand it. You know, you just look at it and, and wonder why things are done the way they are. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, the the aerodynamics in, in modern F1 are simply astounding. But I think even the bigger controversy besides the body, I think, has been the switch over to the V6 turbos this year. Yep, yep. Um, yep. And what are they, 1.6 liter? 1.6, yep. I think they go up to like yep. 15,000 RPM yep. or something. And by all reports, they won't sound as good as the V10s or the V8s. But it should be really interesting era that we're starting in here. Yep. Yeah. Well, we're, I mean, the fastest era in F1 has always been when turbos get introduced. Yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> well, look. I mean, if you go back and see what uh, you know, small motors with turbos look. You know what uh, BMW did a few years back. Same thing. You know, I mean, they were just they blew everybody away. You know, I mean, they just yeah. had more horsepower than know what to do with. Well, you have you have history back. You know, with with Nissan Datsun. Yeah. You know, they were they were very much pioneers in turbocharging. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's 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 funny. What's old is new again, and I, I think the future is 100% turbos at yeah. this point. It's going to be that way for sure. And of course, you know, diesel is. You know, we've gone. You know, direct injection now. You got direct injection, of course, with the with the new Corvettes and stuff. And that's changed. Uh, so much the efficiency of, of uh, the internal combustion engine in that they run so clean and so smooth these days it's just you, you very very seldom see uh, an engine problem at the races there's an interesting uh, there's an interesting anecdote in that with the with the newest uh, the previous generation 997 turbos uh, that were out those cars it was it was rumored that the air exiting the exhaust had less carbon than the air yes, going yep, into the engine yep. which is remarkable yep you know yeah yeah yep. well i think it's a, it's past nine o'clock and i think you've uh 
you're here for the cruise in, and there's a lot of people who want to meet you and say hi to you. A lot of fans out well, there. I'm looking forward to going out yeah. there and seeing how many people showed up. I can't believe, you know, I mean, we've sort of broken all the records for the Motorman. Uh, for people showing up for this thing, so it's it's going to be fun every to go every episode he gets better at marketing himself. Yeah. Oh yeah. So. My son's bringing his five ten, so I'm got a chance to see that car. I haven't seen it yet. So your son live here? Yep. Yeah, okay. Be, well, we'll have yeah. to check it out. Yeah. 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 Great. So, great. so we want to so say thank you. Thank you for right. giving us your time and everything. Good. This has All been right. great. Yeah, this has been great. Have Good. a uh, you know enjoy the weekend and uh, bask in the glory of all the BRE cars yeah, sitting out there. Yeah. All right. Thanks again, Mr. Brock. Okay. All right.